So inshallah, what we'll do is we'll kind of pick up from the, uh, the khutbah uh, today where we started the uh, khutbah talking about uh, the great virtues and supremacy of our beloved Prophet and how that should lead into a sense of responsibility because each and every one of us, really how we should frame <coughs> our existence as Muslims, especially here in America, is that we are we are image bearers of the Prophet No matter if we're in the bar or the minbar, people are watching us, people are somehow attuned to what's going on with the Muslim community. It's a fact, whether we like it or not, that the Qur'an, that the prophetic traditions, our scholarly tradition, as well as our community, every different demographic of our community, is now part of public domain. In fact, it may be safe to say that no other religion in America has become more part of the public discourse than Islam. Uh, and this primary season reflects that. I mean, every week, everybody's waiting on a candidate, especially on the right, to say something inflammatory about Islam and Muslims. Uh, over the last year and a half, we've seen now the phenomena of Muslims being killed in this country in cold blood. Uh, a year ago, we had three young American Muslims uh, brutally murdered in their home in North Carolina. Just today, we had an elderly man, a leader in his community in, in Oregon, a founder of two nonprofits that are working to build schools in, uh, in Afghanistan, was brutally murdered by with, with a shovel. So whether we like it or not, and whether we're comfortable or not, our faith, our community, our religious traditions, the different, different demographics of our community, whether the righteous or people that may not represent Islam in the best way, is part of the public conversation in this country. And because of that, it's important that we remind ourselves in difficult times of the great status of our beloved Messenger, وسلم, for a number of reasons. Number one is, the Muslim community will let you down. That is a reality, right? Because we tend to have really high expectations of one another. And oftentimes, even in the lives of the activists, they'll find themselves somewhat, uh, I would say, weary because of the tremendous amount of abuse, perhaps the mistreatment, the corruption, um, the contradictions that they might find amongst the people of the religion itself. And that's why some ulama 
said about about this verse of Surah al do not make us, O oh Allah, do not make us a trial for the disbelievers. Some of our scholars said, meaning, do not allow us to stray away from the great sincere character that we should hold as Muslims. Do not let our bad character become an alibi for people to excuse themselves from following Islam or finding benefit in Islam. Because if that were to happen, then we would be a fitna for people. So oftentimes it's important to cling to the example of the Prophet in difficult times when people around us may not be where they should be. Maybe it's family members, maybe religious leadership. But always in the Prophet we find some refreshment. Alhamdulillah, we find hope in the Prophet And that's why Imam Ibn Faris is a great scholar, he said, He said, the first thing that you should remember after the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, constantly, is to remember Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa And the names which you should know the most, of course, are the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But after the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, bi'rifani asma'i Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You should know also the names and attributes of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because he said every name of Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa has a fa'ida, has a benefit. So we were talking today in the khutbah about some of the particular characteristics of our beloved messenger. And we'll mention a few of them and then we'll jump right into the main course inshallah. His superiority and how lucky we are to be associated with him. And we talked today about his selflessness. How the Prophet in the face of extreme professional success did not forget about you or forget about me. But how oftentimes Suhaib or any other person, when we experience moments of success, moments of moments of opulence, oftentimes those become alibis for excusing ourselves from being religious or committed. Imam al-Muhazmi, he said, you know, you should avoid anything that causes you to make an excuse for yourself. You should be disciplined. We noted how Al-Habib sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on the night of Isra al-Mi'raj, he experienced the greatest professional success that anyone could imagine. But still in that moment, he remembered his community when he said, As-salamu alayna wa ala ibadillahi salihin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And how, subhanAllah, at that moment, his success does not become an alibi for his destruction in the hereafter. He remembers you and I, so we should also feel committed to remembering him. Maybe I get into the best university, you know. Uh, I'm struggling to get into this school. When I get there, how do I act? Do I maintain some kind of decent character, some kind of normative character? Or does that success blow up my head and cause me to forget my commitment to the Prophet and that's why the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Jibreel, he came to me. This is a good hadith. He said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has offered you to be a king or to be his prophet. So the Prophet ﷺ said, I, I took the advice of Jibreel. And Jibreel, he told the Prophet 
Stay a Prophet. So the Prophet وسلم, as related by Firmidhi, he said, I chose to be a Prophet, meaning, and then he said, I chose to be hungry, and I chose to experience good times, I chose to experience bad times, but I stayed with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we talked about how he cares for you. You know, I think one of the things that we don't teach our children is like, Allah loves you, Prophet he loves you, Prophet has your back. I don't think we teach it to ourselves. You know, do you find the great mercy of Sayyidullah at, at, at an institutional level as a philosophy? Sayyidina Mu'adh radiallahu anhu, he said that on more than one occasion, the Prophet he said, Ya Mu'adh ibn Jabal, oh Mu'adh. And he said, you know, I, I became scared, like, ha ha ha, yes. He said, Wallahi inni uhibbuk. He said, Wallahi, I love you. This happened on more than one occasion. And the Prophet said this to him. That the community around the Prophet felt so valued that each and every one of them thought that they were the most beloved to the Prophet So Amr ibn As, radiallahu anhu, he came to the Prophet because he was confused. Is it me? Is it this person? That person? He said, Ya Rasulullah, He said, O Messenger of Allah, who, who do you love the most? And the Prophet said, Aisha. So Amr al is a very intelligent person. He said, What about the men? Who do you love most from the men? The Prophet said, Abuha, her father. But the point is, Amr al-Ma'as didn't find any contradiction in the Prophet's character, how he made people feel valued. And this is one of the goals of the seerah that is not talked about. That the Prophet ﷺ makes people feel valued. It should be an institutional ethos. It should be an individual ethos to empower other people and to give them a sense of belonging. To the extent that the Prophet ﷺ, even in the face of mistakes, he can turn those mistakes into empowering moments. And he can encourage people, even in their mistakes. Now we see people are successful and we destroy them. But in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, people would make mistakes and he would still give them a sense of value. And there's a reason for that. I like what Sidi Usama Kanan said. How many people lost their humanity trying to become religious? How many people lost their humanity in the name of today? In the name of religiosity? So the Prophet وسلم, in Sahih al-Bukhari, a man, he comes into the masjid of the Prophet وسلم, and he finds the people in the ruku' and he makes ruku' in the doorway and he walks yamshik al-batta like a duck to the prayer. And somebody snitched on him. He said, oh, Messenger of Allah, this guy, he walked from the door to the salah like a duck in ruku. How could someone walk in ruku? Can you imagine an MCA? So someone walked like 30 yards. <laughs> and then the Prophet, after his salah, said, well, where is the guy who made the ruku? And the narrator of the hadith is that person. So he said, I became extremely startled. I was like, oh, snap. Big trouble. The Prophet found out what I did. So he comes to the Prophet وسلم, and he says to him, Jazakallah khairan ala The Prophet says to him, 
Congratulations on your enthusiasm. But don't do it again. But look, subhanAllah, how he teaches him. He recognizes his good qualities and he disciplines him. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So one of the things that we've talked about today is his selflessness. His incredible dedication to you. And how in the Quran, when Allah talks about him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ فِيكُمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ If you're an Arab, he didn't say, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ عِنْدَكُمْ أَوْ أَنَّ مَعْكُمْ So, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ فِيكُمْ This is Qalaqa, this is rhetoric. Why? Because we say the water is in the, in the, in the Zujaja, in the bottle. Fi means in. The Prophet is not inside you. But it's to show you how invested he is in you, how concerned he is for you. His relationship with you is such that still he's in you. Sallallahu alayhi wa To highlight this more, and then we'll get on to the main course. Is that fact that the Prophet was the only Prophet who knew that he was forgiven of all his sins. No other Prophet knew about Isma. Imam al-Marzuqi, al-Maliki, the book that we study here on Sundays, he said, وَعِسْمَةٌ كَسَائِلِ الْمَلَائِكَةِ وَاجِبَةٌ وَفَاضِلُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ This small text we had to memorize in Egypt many years ago. He said that, you know, the infallibility of the Prophets is like angels. لَا يَعْسُونَ اللَّهِ مَا But the Prophet is the only one who knew that he is forgiven. And the proof of this is a long hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. When in the hereafter, people will come to all of the Prophets. And that's why in another narration, the Prophet said, I am the hope of humanity. What did he mean by I am the hope of humanity? Is that on the day of Al-Hashar, may Allah make it easy for us. Everyone will be fleeing to the prophets, asking them to intercede for them. And every prophet they go to will mention some mistake they made. So Imam Azit ibn Abdul Salam, he said, the reason that they are going to mis mention mistakes they made is they are not aware that they've been forgiven. Then they will go to Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, and they will ask him to intercede with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on their behalf. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Sayyidina Isa will say to them, No, no, I made such and such mistake. Here we see the humility of the Prophet. You know? Their mistakes are more important to them than their successes. So I made such and such mistake, but I know the one you should go to. So they will ask him, who is it? Habu ila Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Go to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They will come to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and they will ask him to intercede for them and he will say, Ana laha. This is my job. Because he knows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. With that type of person, that we are lucky enough to be associated to with Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Becomes important that we think about our legacy in this country that we're going to leave. Because the Prophet had great hope for us. Especially the latter Ummah. We're going to talk about this in a second. 
You know, the Prophet وسلم, as related by Imam Malik in the Muatta and Imam Muslim, he said, when he was walking with his companions, He said, you know, I would love to see our brothers and sisters. And the Sahaba, their response is harsh, actually. And Arabic is like, huh? What? So, like, we're not? That's the meaning. Like, Alam Tara so Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Al-Arabi Al-Maliki says that the reason that they are allowed to talk to the Prophet like this is because nobody could be patient in competing for the love of the Prophet So they said to him, are we not your brothers and sisters? The Prophet said, you are my companions. But our brothers and sisters are those who will come after us. So, he's talking about you guys. Oftentimes I find it extremely irresponsible for khatibs and imams and du'at to try to scare the community into being motivated. No doubt there's a time that we need to scare people. Of course, there's a time where we should invoke responsibility. But in general, why not try to inspire people? Why not try to build instead of trying to destroy once I was in Egypt, and I had a sheikh, he was um, a wheelchair. I was reading Usul of Fiqh with him, and I could only go on Fridays to his house. He lived in Samaria. So I, I went to his house on a Friday, and there was a masjid next to his home. And the bawab, like the, door, the, the doorman, he came to the, the door, he's banging on the door, he said, Sheikh, Sheikh. The, the khatib didn't, didn't come today. We need a khatib. He said, how am I going to give khutbah? I'm, I'm in a wheelchair. Then the sheikh said, I, uh, I know who can give the khutbah. That Ameriki, that Kwaizu. That American can give the khutbah. So then I said, what? In English? He's like, no, no, but Arabic is not so I said to him, no, it's not my mother tongue, it's not, you know, this, I haven't prepared, I don't know what to do. So he said, la, 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 I said to me, just go and scare them, you know? <laughs> Prepare anything. Just, just scare people. He said, if you scare them, they will tell you, like, they will kiss you on your head. It's the greatest khutbah we ever heard in our life. I said, so that's the secret, Oftentimes we're reminded of how evil we are, but do you know that scholars actually wrote 40 hadith, books of 40 hadith on how lucky it is to be from the latter ummah. Ibn Abdu'l-Bar al-Hafiz, in his book of Istifkar, he said, you know, I, I wish I could be from the latter ummah. And he, he said, when I read the, 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 the ajr that they will get for doing small deeds, comparative to those who will have done a lot, but in times where the environment was conducive to piety. He said, I feel somewhat jealous of you. I feel jealous of you. So the Prophet said, I would love to see them. He's talking about you. And Allah mentions you in the Quran. You are mentioned in Surah Al-Hajr. We are mentioned, Allah says, those who come after the Sahaba. And also, Allah mentions us also in Surah Al-Jum'ah. Alhamdulillah. 
And the Prophet said, They'll be good in my ummah until the end of time. It is irresponsible. As Imam al-Ghazali said, fear is only good as long as it inspires. And hope is only good as long as it inspires. But if fear becomes an alibi to be empathetic, then it's counterproductive. And if hope becomes an alibi to become lazy, then it's counterproductive. So we have a tremendous responsibility to live up to this person. And if we don't do it, we're in big trouble. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَكَيْفَ إِذَا جِئْنَا مِنْ كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ بِشَهِدٍ وَجِئْنَا بِكَ عَلَى هَؤُلَاءِ شَهِدًا How will it be, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? We bring you, we bring for every nation a witness against them, and we bring you as a witness against your nation. When the Prophet heard this verse, he began to weep, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That takes us to Obama's speech. I was actually in Norway at the Aurora Borealis. MashaAllah, I had to miss Obama's speech. But I'll take the Northern Lights, mashallah. You can watch the speech on YouTube. But it was a very important speech. It was a powerful speech. He said a number of things which are extremely important. He said a number of things which, of course, are controversial. He has to. He's a politician. But I found it surprising that the Muslim community found itself occupied in perhaps the strategic reasons behind his speech or what he should have said, what he shouldn't have said. I'm telling the truth. I have one friend, he's in Tariqah. He said, I was hoping that Obama would make bay'ah to our shaykh. I said to him, it's kind of a possibility, I mean, maybe. Maybe he did, according to Trump. Barak Hussein Obama al-Shaziri. But what I, I think is more important for us to think about is that we have a tremendous responsibility in the face of two points I just mentioned. Number one, whether you or I like it or not, Islam is part of the public domain. And we need to understand something about Islamophobia. Islamophobia is a very sophisticated thing. It's not a bunch of stupid hillbillies. It's not a bunch of dumb people. I live in Washington, D.C. We see the lobby behind Islamophobia. These are people who have a tremendous amount of capital. They have a tremendous amount of actually disposable income now. I was on a trip once with a person, I'm not allowed to say their name because I don't want to get them in trouble, who's considered a reform Jewish leader and who's sympathetic to Muslim causes and to Palestine. And we wanted Someone, another Muslim scholar was going to join us on this trip and there was this big kind of uproar because people were saying this Muslim scholar denied the Holocaust, which he didn't, but you know, it's a rumor. So, I just want you to understand something. So on the trip, the, the, this Jewish leader that I was with, his phone is blowing up like the 4th of July. He's obviously extremely stressed out. So I said to him, and the Muslim, the Muslim leader came and joined us, alhamdulillah. This wasn't Imala, okay? I'm BDS, so make it clear. And as we were there, I said to him, what's, what's going on? Like, who's calling you? Are you okay? He said, well, I'm receiving phone calls from, listen to this, from my backers, who are saying that if I don't get rid of this person, this imam that joined us, they're going to stop my funding. 
I said, yeah, but you, you're on the far left, man. Like, why would they fund you in the first place? Like, people who don't like this individual are usually not even center right. I mean, the people who don't like people like him are like far right, really far right conservatives or Zionists. He said to me, they fund both. One person funds two groups in one community. You understand what I'm just telling you? They fund this brother because he's on the far left. So they want to have control of the far left. But they also fund people on the far right so they can have control over the far right. That's one donor. And I said, man, this is sophisticated. He said to me, may Allah protect you. This is a Jewish man. I said, wow. One donor has that kind of capital that he can or she can play on the right and on the left. And we're busy theoretically arguing Moon, pants, meat, mortgage, music, and you have a community which is so sophisticated and has so much disposable income that they can have influence on the left and the right. It's deep. And he said to me, may Allah help you. I said, yeah, let's be Allah. <laughs> but this is mentioned in the Quran. يُنْفِقُونَ لِيُسُدُّ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ Allah said, they spend so they can block people from the way of Allah. So the point that I wanted to touch on tonight is in the face of Islam being part of the public discussion. In the face of Islam, and that's why we have to support care. No matter how much people try to talk about care, to harm care, understand that that's part of the goal of Islamophobia. Islamophobia's goal is not that the far right can attack you and I. That's, that's already done. They don't like us. Islamophobia's goal is, and this is what was done with the black community historically, Black Panther Party historically, it was done with the Jewish American community, the Irish American community, but now I think it's much more, in some ways even sinister, some degree, although you can't compare it to what black Americans have gone through. And that is that Islamophobia wants to make the eradication of Muslims in America palatable to the left, not to the right. The right is cool, but to the left. If you can get people on the fence, and you can get people that are traditionally Muslim allies to begin to question our position in society, our goals in society, our dreams and ambitions in this country, then you are talking about some very serious problems. The second thing is Obama's speech. With all these things in mind, we have really only one thing to think about, and that's the importance of becoming more invested in activism, more invested in society, more invested in this country, not to pull out. And I talked about this last time. As a white American male, it's strange for me to talk about this. I was born with privilege, right? My education, you know, my career opportunities basically were given to me by people who stole someone else's land, right? And I believe Islam has a remedy for white privilege. It's called Sufism. <laughs> Seriously. Humility. But I'm speaking to you now as someone who also had to give up 
some of what that means by being Muslim. You know what I mean? Right? I may not be able to move into Beverly Hills now. I might get Los Gatos, but not Beverly Hills. There's been a little struggle. And when I'm talking to you, I'm trying to speak to you as not Imam Suhaib Webb, but as someone who has a vested interest in the future of this country. For this country's sake and for my children's sake. And who is extremely concerned with the death of black children every week on television at the hands of policemen. Who's concerned about the treatment of certain Jewish communities in this country. Things that have happened in synagogues. Who's concerned about many things that touch on the rights of Americans because I know that my rights are tied together with their rights. And when we start to tinker with people's personal freedoms and allow a presidential candidate to speak about Mexican-Americans the way that Donald Trump did, to speak about women, even though it was Megyn Kelly, me and Megyn Kelly, we could be in a celebrity death match. I'm not going to lie. She'd be the celebrity. Although she called me cute, so I give her some love. I was flattered, but not really. Okay, I asked her out, it didn't work. Interfaith, the interfaith thing. She said no. But I should be concerned about her when she, as a woman, is being publicly spoken to in a way which is degrading to women. And then comes the concerns for my own community. So with that in mind, we do not in any way, shape, or form have the opportunity to entertain the idea of pulling out of the process. What we should do is we should use the fact that our religion is part of the public domain. This speech that President Obama gave, and instead of talking and arguing, we should individually and institutionally be, create, be, be far more committed to America than ever before. And I'll tell you why I think this is the case. Right now, Islam is one big mujman in America. We have a principle in Usul al-Fiqh. you can put it in anything. It's such a beautiful subject. Mujman means something which is ambiguous. Right? We say al-mujmal yufassar. Al-durura. It's an axiom in Usul al-Fiqh. The ambiguous text has to be explained. So when the Prophet said, pray, how do you pray? It's mujma. Then he teaches you, that explains it. So we say the sunnah explains the Qur'an, all those verses in the Qur'an which are somewhat ambiguous. Now in this country, Islam is a mujma. Qur'an is a mujma. Sunnah is a mujma. Who is going to be ultimately the tafsir of Islam for America? That's my question to you. Is it Imam Suhaid? No. Part of the answer. Sheikh Hamza, part of the answer. Sheikh Muslima, part of the answer. But at a greater level, at a greater level, you at work, at school, on the playground, in your communities where you organize with people and you work for causes, you are a more effective tafsir of Islam than anything else. And if that tafsir, that explanation pulls out 
Who will explain Islam for us? I'll give you an example. I was invited once to speak at a library uh, on the East Coast to a group of Jewish community members who were all senior citizens, but mashallah, had long pockets. You know what I'm saying? And they were really cool people. So they asked me to come and talk about Islam. Unfortunately, I had to go out of town. Two of my students had left the city, so I, I really didn't have anyone, uh, and the imams uh, in the area weren't able to speak English. So I had to nicely, you know, excuse myself. I received a phone call from one of the folks there a few weeks later, and they said, well, we, we think you need to come back again. So I never came in the first place. She said, well, the person who came kind of created some problems for you, not for us. I said, really? Well, she said, you know, we put out kind of an email, hey, we're a group of elderly people with a tremendous amount of money looking for someone to come and speak about Islam. And this person from the evangelical community said he was a scholar of Islam, showed up, selling his book called, you know, The Crescent, some one of those weird names, man, The Crescent and, you know, uh, The Washington Monument or whatever, and basically told us that you guys are here to kill us. <laughs> and I said, but why did you do that? She said, because you couldn't come. One time we went to one of our teachers in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, we had some questions for him about in the 90s, there was actually this big debate about voting in elections, right? It seems crazy now. And when we went to ask him, is it allowed for us to vote? He said, an empty chair can't speak for you. So if you and I don't begin to participate, and this is why, and it gets me in trouble with you guys a lot, I push for Islam in America. No longer speaks about the Sufis and the Salafis and the Mu'tazilis. Islam in America begins to speak about problems which are unique to America, theologically, so that people find value in Islam in this country. But if you and I are too busy arguing about stuff that has nothing to do with people's lives around us, it's going to be very difficult, we're in the, in, in, uh, in the Bay Area, to offer them a value prop. What is the value prop of Islam in my life? Right now, people are worried. So what I want to talk about is the importance of activism, the need for us to be contributed, contributing to society, to building partnerships with other organizations. Those of you who study Saul Alinsky, Rules for Radicals, exactly, community organization, organizing around certain things in this country which are important, offering our religious faith-based solutions to that, and then hopefully people will be able to see with their own eyes, man, this is, who, this is what Islam is. And you young, Men and women in this in this in this gathering tonight. It's great to see so many young people here on a Friday night, by the way, mashallah. Your role in all of this is crucial. Because you're the future. So first of all, activism as a point of entry. We find in the Quran something remarkable. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not only talks about activism, but he talks about some of the concerns people may have around activism. The greatest concern I usually find with common folks like us is, you know, who am I? I just met, you know, I'm just a college student. I'm just a high school student. 
I'm just an IT guy. I'm just an IT girl. I'm just this. You know, I'm not a sheikh. I'm not an imam. I'm not a scholar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with this in the Quran in a very beautiful way through two ways. Number one is, we're the only religion as far as I know that actually forces us to organize as a community and work together as a community because we have fadu'ayn, fadu'kifayn. We have individual obligations. We have communal obligations. The Malikis, not only do we have fadu'ayn and fadu'kifayn, we have sunna'iniyya wa sunna'kifayya. So we say, what does that mean? We have individual obligations. For example, praying. We have community obligations. Praying the janazah for some. We have sunnah, which are individual, like me praying the sunnah before Jumu'ah. Then we have sunnah, which fall on the community according to the Malikis, like the adhan and the yaqama. So you find that our religion, this ethos of building not only an individual relationship with God, but to fulfill that completely, I have to function in a community. That's why the Prophet said, Yallah ma'a the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with the group. We find this notion of I'm not good enough, or I don't know, or you know, I'm just a normal layman, whatever, we make so many excuses for ourselves, I do it all the time. We find in Surah Yasin something very beautiful. It's a very beautiful chapter. In the second page, Allah mentions a city that was so egregious, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to send them three prophets. Can you imagine like three prophets? Like, yo, what's wrong with y'all? Dang, dude, one prophet is <laughs> like, you need three, like, what? Allah says, We sent three prophets to them and they rejected them. And there's something here I want you to pay attention to. It's very interesting. So Allah says, after these three prophets were rejected, Allah says, there came from Aqsa al-Madinah. Aqsa, of course we know Masjid al-Aqsa. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring stability and peace, inshaAllah. Al-Aqsa means the farthest thing. I had a shaykh al-Hilwan, I used to say, Anta ta'i, ta'ish al-Aqsa dunya. The neighborhood called Hilwan, I used to say, you live like at the end of the dunya, Aqsa dunya. Dawagin. If you know, if you're Egyptian, you know what I'm talking about. So, Allah says, Ja'a min Aqsa al-Madinah. Let me ask you a question about this guy. Because there's two, there's two concerns that come up. Number one is, I'm not good enough. I'm just a normal person. Right? Number two is, if Imam Suhaib Webb knew what I was doing last night, or even before I came here, or maybe what I'm going to do later, he wouldn't be telling me to do this. Because I have a lot of issues. Everyone has issues. Let me point out, Two things in the verse. Number one, Rajulun. Allah doesn't mention his name. Scholars don't even know who this person is. But we know when Allah says Rajulun, it means a normal guy. He's just a normal person. So his normality is not an alibi for him not to be responsible. Right? He doesn't say, well, I'm just a normal guy. Those are three prophets. They got rejected. I'm good. Peace out. No. He responds. But here's something a lot of people miss in the and it's lost in the translation. It says he came from the farthest point of the city. Let me ask you a question. If you are a righteous person, and you knew that there were three prophets somewhere, would you be close to them or far from them? Would you be close or far? Be close. So maybe this guy is not the best 
Because why isn't he like right there with him, hanging out with him? Like I remember when Sheikh Muhammad Al Hassan came many years ago with Wasim. I see Wasim here, mashallah, looking handsome. His name is Wasim. Ismaila Musab, Abu Usam. I remember when Sheikh Muhammad Hassan came, I came from Oklahoma to be with him. Right? Like, this is a great scholar. People came from all over the country to be with Sheikh Muhammad. Right? If it were three prophets, like, I would just move to your name. So Allah says, We understand that maybe this guy wasn't the most committed, dedicated Muslim because he wasn't close to the prophets. So his shortcomings in a religion are also not used as an alibi not to be passionate. So we find two things in this verse, three things in this verse if you pay attention. Number one, the idea of a community obligation. Listen, the da'wah is not working with three prophets. Hey, I gotta jump in and do my part. Number two is, I'm just a normal guy. I'm an auto mechanic. So what? I gotta do my part. Number three, I'm not the most religious person. But you know what? Who cares? I got that passion for what's right. That takes us to the second concern that people, or really the fourth concern, those three in one verse, mashallah, of community organization and activism, is that oftentimes people feel that, you know what, we can only work with the Muslims. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Try to solve Ramadan for us. That worked with the Muslims. When I was in Boston, this lady came into my office, she asked me to endorse her for mayor. I've never been asked that in my life. It's the weirdest feeling in the world. So I'm going to ask you to endorse him for mayor. I watched too many episodes of House of Cards. I was about to ask her for some money. <laughs> and a position in the government. Friends of Underwood. <laughs> so she, she said to me, uh, Imam, I want you to uh, endorse me for mayor. I'm from your neighborhood, neighborhood which is being bleached. It wasn't being gentrified, it was being bleached. Um, so and such and such. And then I said to her, like, why would you want us? Like, we're not good on a political CV. Like, Imam, what's you? She said, are you aware of how many ethnicities you have in your community? I said, no. She said, 91. I said, 91? She said, yeah. Do you know what that means? I said, yeah, it's a headache. <laughs> it's hard to deal with all these different people. And she said, that means power. Right? She understands, see, religious people, we tend not to understand what power means. But I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, read books on community organization. You have Zahra Bito here, who is a, basically imam of community organization. Have her perhaps conduct, and you're in the Bay Area after Chicago, which is really seen as the second capital of community organization and social struggle. But the idea of power in those circles is not the negative connotation of power means the power to do good. Right? The power to make change. So she, what she meant by 91 different ethnicities is that diversity, that ability to work with that many different type of people is power. The Prophet taught us this in a very unique way. The Sahih al-Bukhari, because this is one of the concerns sometimes of our brothers and sisters, I get this question from MSAs every year, two or three times a year, is can we work with this group, can we work with that group, I mean they do certain bad things, they do certain good things, but they do certain bad things, I don't know what to do. In our classical books of fiqh, 
that one of the reasons we should read Tefillah is not just for the legal aspect, and that's why it's important to read the classical texts. But when we, when we read the classical books, the Mutawwalat, the bigger books, actually what you're reading is a negotiation between the heavens and the earth. How did the scholars of law ensure that people here, in face of tremendous challenges and difficulties, will be able to maintain a relationship with Allah? What Imam al-Haddad said, to tie the heavens to the earth. So there was a question that started to appear really in the 5th century, 4th century, 5th century. And that was that oftentimes leaders of the Muslim world would be forced to choose people to do certain tasks who may not be the most pious people. In fact, Imam uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was asked about choosing a military general. There was a leader who needed to choose a military general and there were two candidates. One of them was mediocre in his in military strategy, but he was righteous. The other guy, this is very important, think about what we do in our institutions. When we choose leaderships, we always choose the pious person. That's not what we should do. We should choose the most qualified person. The second one was someone who said he was mahiran, he's extremely talented as a military strategist, says he was an open sinner. The scholars use the word fasim, but it doesn't just mean a bad person. It means someone who's known to be tripping. Someone who's known to be just out there. Ibn Taymiyyah said, my humble opinion, this is the opinion of the Malikis and the Hanbali, Hanbalis also. He said, my humble opinion is that it is an obligation upon the Amir to choose the fasim. Because he's the most qualified. And this was his fatwa. And this is the fatwa of Imam al Suqi, great Maliki scholar. I mentioned names because I know there's certain people who will be waiting for me in the parking lot. <laughs> and Imam Ibn Qudama in Al Mughni. So here we see something. Our scholars, even within the Muslim community, knew that we weren't a monolith. And it wasn't necessarily always about piety, but it was about what? Maximum benefits. Imam Izzuddin Abdul Salam, he has a very beautiful statement. He said there are times when the Muslim will have to work with people who are evil to accomplish greater good, a.k.a. power. And he said not because it's evil in itself, but because the outcome of working with that person will bring a greater benefit to humanity. You find this fatwa mentioned in the Shafi'i Madhab, in a book called Al-Fatwa Al-Kubra, of a great scholar, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalan. I know when I quote these names, people get upset. This is how I'm trained, I'm sorry. But you know what? Who knows the names of One Direction? That ain't hard. You know what my teacher used to tell me? You will know what you love. You will know what you love. I know, I know Zayn left. He got a new song out. I got kids. It ain't hard. I know whose new girlfriend is. Muslim sister. Her dad's name is Muhammad. I know the whole name. Inshallah, I'll do the nikah for the inshallah. 
But I'm charging that couple. <laughs> I'm charging that couple for the guy. Zane, write that check, Zane. Zane, ya Zane? Zane, get a hole. But Imam Ibn Hajar al-Hazdami in the Fatwa al-Kubra was asked by a group of Muslims who lived at that time in what were considered lands of non-Muslims. He was asked, do we have to leave? Because like, hello, we live here. He said to them, and this is the opinion of Imam Shafi, Imam Anawi, and others, and the Madhab itself, Mu'tamad, that is the obligation for you to stay there. I wish people would have heard this when Anwar was spilling that toxic stuff when he was telling all the American Muslims to leave America. It goes counter to the four madahib. Those grateful aha, thousands of jurists. We shouldn't get emotional about people or personalities. We should think about knowledge, not people. Imam Ibn Hajar al he said, فَأَمَّا مَنْ Whoever lives in the land of non-Muslims and they're able to pray and establish the basics of Islam. He didn't say the dawla, the basics. And, and stay away from the haram and the halal and observe the halal. He said, إِنَّنَا wajib. It's an obligation. They live there. Because even though it appears bad, the ultimate good is great. What he meant by that, and he explains it in his beautiful ruling is, and this is also the opinion of Ibn al-Sadiq al-Ghumari, our shaykh from Morocco, that the greater good will be accomplished because people like Suhaib will become Muslim. People like all these young, incredible convert and older, not old, convert brothers and sisters were touched by some Muslim who lived amongst them. So he said, this is the greatest objective. So even though there's some difficulty and there's some evil there, the greater good is accomplished. So that takes us to the point of activism. We're concerned about working with this group or working with that group. Listen, nothing is a monolith. You never, I never walk into a community organization saying, I want everything I want. It's not going to happen that way. i got to give and take. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ, he taught us this in his sunnah. Number one is when he made hijrah, his guide was a non-Muslim. In fact, our scholars, most of them say, that the person who guided the Prophet ﷺ to Medina, ma aslam, never became Muslim. But the Prophet worked with him, ﷺ. Secondly, in Sahih al-Bukhari, when the Prophet ﷺ, when he was making, observing the minor pilgrimage, and he was rebuffed by the people of Mecca. Before Surah Hudaybiyah, his camel stopped on the way to Mecca. His companions begin to tease him. He said, look at your camel, man. Your camel's not working. The Prophet said, You know, she wasn't created to be like this. The one who caused her to sit down is the one who caused the, the elephants to sit down in the year of the elephant. Then the Prophet pointed to Mecca. He said, those people, that year is considered the year with the greatest animosity between the Prophet and the people of Mecca. But he said, those people, if they ask me to join them in doing something good or something that protects families, now in D.C., right? You know, D.C., we're not even a state. We're the state. Get your driver's license. We'll look at it. A year long. Point is, 
Now we're fighting for paid leave for our mothers in D.C. Someone asked me, is there any evidence in Islam for fighting for paid leave for new mothers? I said, yeah, the Prophet said somebody pointed at the people of, towards Mecca, he said, and to establish families, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or to look after something which is commendable by Islam, I will work with them to do it. Imam Ibn Qayyim in Zahr al-Ma'ad, you know Zahr al-Ma'ad, he didn't write it, he, he, he said it on the way to Hajj, and his student wrote it. It's four volumes, man, mashallah, what a trip. That's why it's called Zahr al-Ma'ad. He was talking on his camera, and his, his horse, his student wrote Zahr al-Ma'ad. Ibn Qayyim commenting on this incident, I want us to listen to this carefully. He said, if the Prophet is willing to organize and work with the people of Mecca, at the height of their hatred for him, when it comes to doing something good, he said that this is a green light, of course I'm paraphrasing, he said green light, this is a green light for Muslims, wherever they are, to organize and work with whoever they can in doing good for society. This is our sunnah. Not a sunnah of insecurity and fear, I can't work with anybody, oh my God, they're gonna change my deed, I'm gonna lose everything, it's the opposite. The Prophet understands the Alinsky definition of power. What it means to have influence in change people around us. Now that takes us quickly to a number of conditions that should be there if we're going to take on this process. Institutionally, MCA, you really have to begin to ask yourself, what does MCA mean to this community in San Jose? One of the biggest problems I have as a Muslim, is our pan-world vision of Islam. So we'll constantly be talking about changing the world, making the world a better place. What about Oakland? What about the Tenderloin? What about San Jose, Santa Clara, Scott Boulevard? Once an Islamophobe, I was giving a speech with this Islamophobe. But I want to tell you something, they're slick. I was invited actually to go on tour with Ayan Hirsi Ali. That would been a tour, right? It would been like Kanye and Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> Although she would have been like Meek Mill. But, back to back. <laughs> but, check it out. So they thought I was a stupid white convert guy. Right? They thought I'm a stupid white convert guy from Oklahoma. So they called me, hi, uh, Imam Webb, we're the publishers of Ayan, we're trying to sell her book, and we want to know if you'd like to go on tour with her, we will pay you $10,000 a speech, 15 speeches this year. I'm good. <laughs> Give me that 150 now. Let me get that I-8. And they said, well, could you send us a bio? I said, sure. So I put together the, you know, the academic bio. Half the Quran, 10 years here, degree in education, Ezhar Sharif, this, this, this. So I sent them like that kind of, not gonna lie, you know, I embellished a little. It's I am. I got scared. So, works at Harvard. After I sent them that CV, in less than two and a half hours, they wrote back and said, uh, yeah, we're gonna have to cancel. We don't want someone I can bang with. We want someone she can run over. So I begin to realize, man, these are very sinister people. 
And their job is to manufacture meaning. Just like this country in its whiteness manufacture, I'm not talking about white people, I'm talking about whiteness. Right? Read boy Tim Weiss or whatever, one of those guys. Allows America to look at Cam Newton different than Peyton Manning. And sanctions it. Or better yet, Michael Vick and the issue with the dogs. I'm from the South. My grandfather knew about dogs. They're white people. I'm not saying I know I'm on the West Coast. The people here, you know, I know. And there's a millennial angst. I'm a generation Xer. I'm sorry. But I remember in the South, my pappy, okay, they fought and bet on dogs. But Michael Vick is defiled far, far more greater than the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. What does the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers get accused of? Rape. It's race. It's how race works. And as Muslims, Tawheed helps us see through that nonsense. But the point I'm trying to make is, a young black man expresses himself after, if I lost the Super Bowl, I'd have like thrown the table up, <laughs> thrown the Gatorade at people. I'd have been angry. Especially if I was on that team, how did they lose? It'd be like having Kaepernick as a quarterback. I'd be angry. Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong city. But you understand where I'm going with this. I would be angry. I'll be mad. But for a black, a young black man in America to express his anger somehow is not sanctioned by that larger rhetoric. Right? We should speak out against that. Whereas Peyton Manning. A few years back, didn't even shake the other. He left the field before the clock went out. I like Peyton. That's my man. I'm glad he won. I want him to retire, though, before he, like, shatters. Right? But the point is, that same thing is happening to us. I remember Amir Abdelmalik. God bless Amir Abdelmalik. Right after 9-11, I heard what he said on the minbar. I can't repeat what he said. But what he basically said is that there is an investment now in America to create an image of what Islam means to people. It's a battle of meaning. So there are a number of things that we should think about before we continue. We'll stop and shall make a brief. Number one is, what does MCA mean to San Jose? Everyone here should be, or, or your moms, or your Islamic school, or your little Islamic group, your Yik Yak group, I don't know. You know what Yik Yak is? You better find out. Your kids are on it. I know what it is. I'm on it. I'll watch all y'all. Just joking. <laughs> Point is, what do we mean to the broader society? People around us, man. What do we mean to each other? And being able to answer that question will create a strategic vision by which the community can craft, can, can craft programming, and other things that will help live that vision. When I was in Boston, you know what our strategic vision was? For the people of the city to love us. That's it. How can you make them love you? Serve them. Do good. Invest in things around you. 200 people learning English in the mosque who weren't even Muslim. In the west, west side of LA, I was there consulting for a community I said, how can you make this community love you? They said, we put a sign up in Spanish that said, there's no God but Allah. Muhammad is a messenger of Allah. I was like, look at every church in the 
neighborhood. They got a sign that says the same thing without Muhammad and Allah. What makes you different? Well, brother, mashallah, there's barakah. No, I don't want the barakah is not an alibi. I said to them, how many of you, you saw these little kids playing there right Speaking Spanish? You think they need vaccinations? Why don't you offer vaccinations? Right? Yeah, touch people. What do you mean to people? That forces us to let go of where the khayra ummah ukhrijat linas, nahnu afdala ummah, ba'atamallahu ta'ala inasi jami'an. You know, we can get rid of all those cool slogans. What do we mean to society? What do we want to mean to society? And then we craft an institutional vision that goes after that. And we craft that as a community so there's buy-in. And then we should acquire certain qualities for activism. The Quran is so amazing, I don't have time. Silent activism, silent protest. They didn't speak, that's silent protest. Women activism, Sayyidina Musa's sister, her, her. Without the people who are saying women have no role in da'wah, if it was up to them, Sayyidina Musa would still be in the house of Pharaoh because he would have never let his sister go and save him. In the name of patriarchy, they would have said, nah, girl, stay at the crib, you good. The baby, I'll be all right. Allah heard this, uh, this woman. Allah didn't tell her to be quiet. She has a voice. Youth in the Hufitetun Abu Rabbihim. Peaceful protest with the Khatab Salama. Say salam. Every form of modern day protest you will find it mentioned in the Quran. So I was shocked, even with some of my teachers in Egypt, right? Sold out and basically said, stay at home, don't get involved. Don't cause any trouble. Khuruj on the hukam. This, 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 this. Get out of here. So there are a number of qualities you should think about acquiring those stop now. To really be, and I'm telling you young people, I love to talk with tweets, on the message on Snapchat. Young people here are ball awesome, man. These young people don't play. But if we don't use them and get them involved, man, subhanAllah, man. How many generations of young people want to keep coming to our institutions and we're like, yeah, they had so much, so much hope. Why are they now? I have no idea. God help us. So the first one is knowledge. Allah says, And here knowledge means two things. To be involved in activism. Knowledge of the religion and knowledge of the cause you're invested in. Knowledge of the history of the cause. Sayyidina Abu Bakr used to come to the Prophet and tell him the history of all the trials before he said and talked to them. He's his press man. He preps him. He walks into that meeting prepared. He needs to be shocked. How can we know so much about us? So we should know something about the history of where we are here in the West Coast, up north. They say, you know what they say about you guys? I lived here, so I can say this. I got love. But on the East Coast, when you say, like, I lived in the Bay Area, they're like, it's like another world. It's like another place. It's like a different, different, it's not even America. I remember when I lived here in 2008, I went home to visit my mom, and I was like, McCain? Who's McCain? Who's McCain's son? Now, one Obama son in Oklahoma. Except my mama's house. Right? McCain. What is? You should be aware of the powerful history of this area. Right? What the history of this area means. Right? How it came about. Different communities that have fought and struggled. Now you have the struggle for the gentrification of San Francisco, and now it's moving to Oakland. Right? You should understand what that means and how you can, in, in Boston, we took on gentrification because we felt that Moses wasn't only sent to the Hebrews, Moses was sent to Pharaoh. 
Sometimes we just want to speak, you know, when I was on Faith in the Nation, all these different religious leaders were saying, our religion was sent to help the poor, our religion was sent to help the meek, and I said, no, our religion was sent to reprimand the rich. It's not just simply about just opposing my religion to the weakest of the weak and then saying my religion is good. No, my religion should be able to reflect itself in the face of Pharaoh and have swagger. So there should be an investment in all that's happening in this area here and some history. And that's why the convert becomes extremely important because the convert by default and these young people by default will have a natural understanding of the history of what this place means. That means the knowledge of the place. That's why Imam Ahmad always asked, who, what are the conditions of fatwa? He said, Ma'rifatul Nas. You gotta know the hood. Al-Qarafi said, if you don't know people, you can't give a fatwa. Jumulul Kutub, Dallul Mudil. said, just to tell people this book said this and this book said this, so you're gonna lead them astray. You gotta know who you're talking to. Secondly is Ma'rifat. We said knowledge of the deen and knowledge of the people. So that's what knowledge means. Ya ayyuhal nas. Knowledge of the people. The second condition is group work. Yeah, they work together. We have so many solo artists, you know. We have so many talented people. But you know what? What I love about Imam Magic, those of you who know Imam Magic, he's with us. I live in D.C., he lives in Virginia. 99% of the people will tell you they live in D.C. Don't live in D.C., okay? They live in Virginia. Let's get this straight. Just like when I meet people, oh, I'm from San Francisco, really? Where do you live? Oh, uh, I live in San Ramon. <laughs> San Francisco, well, no, but you know, I'm close to it. No, you're not. Monterey is Monterey, bro. Canary Road is Canary Road. The loin is the loin, and that ain't Canary Road. So, Imam Majid, one of our great leaders in this country, learned something from him. And that is an incredibly talented person who has the ability to work with others. And you can find incredibly talented people who are like Zayn Malik. They could work on their own. But real talent is being able to synergize all that. And that's what makes the Sahaba incredibly great, you know. You, you look at the followers of the Prophet, they were all very incredible, they were incredible people in the whole right. Our own communities, you have a lot of ego, a lot of chiefs, a lot of people tell themselves who they are. But if you're not able to synergize and work together, man, there's no bother. So the second condition is working together. Third condition of spirituality, there has to be some kind of piety. It can't just be activism without salah. I'm with you as long as you pray. Everything else comes after that. Everything comes after the relationship with Allah. Next condition after that, is tamiz, meaning I don't, in the name of da'wah, lose my principles. When I used to teach it, uh, this halakha at Berkeley, that was a historic halakha that happened about 13 years ago with our mass brothers here, Faras and Kamal and those wonderful people. We started at UC Berkeley. What a halakha, man. Those kids were crazy. And I was from Oklahoma, so I was like, these people are really liberal. Like, wow, what? You do, you play, you bowl with girls? And I was very conservative. I came out of Oklahoma. Sorry. So anyways, but one of the things that happened one day is after I finished my class, a young man came to me. He's like, Imam, I want to ask you about making dawah. I said, okay, sure. He said, well, I start going to the club. 
What kind of jamaat is that? I'm down for 40 days. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> you know, Jamaat Tabiq loves Donald Trump because they register the names. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> register the names of Donald Trump. Register names. Tabiq, register your names. Don't get it? Sorry. So, I love Tabiq. I did 40 days. Okay? So, I said, the club, you can't find love in the club, man. He said, I started making the dollar, dollar to someone named Shireen. <laughs> I thought she was Egyptian. Shireen? There's a singer named Shireen from Austin. I said, Shireen? He said, yeah, man. I met her in biology. So she invited me to this club. So I went in there. I was dancing. I said, I'm making dollar. <laughs> Man, I'm glad I didn't meet you when I converted to nothing would have changed. I said, really? I said, yeah, man. I think I'm going to go again. I said, stop. Just, that's when Oklahoma came out. Just stop. I said, let me ask you a question, man. Who was on the, who was the object of the Dawah? Let's just be honest. Was it you? Let's just be honest. Let's just be real. Was it you or Shireen? And he said, man, okay, well, it was me. Right? <laughs> Point is, you can't sacrifice, no offense to sisters, I am being patriarchal, please don't write a blog post about me. I don't know Northern California, and that kind of discussion is very sensitive. Invert it, put to a girl and a guy in the story and tell yourself, okay? I didn't mean it that way. But this happened to me here in Northern California. He said he's making dawah in a nightclub. The example, <laughs> the example that I'm giving you is called the absence of Tamiz. He has not distinguished himself as a believer. He has kind of let himself go, telling himself, somehow, I'm going to make dawah to this lady. While we up in there doing the dab, hopefully halfway through it should do shahada. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Right? That's tamiz. Tamiz means, no, I don't give up my principles. I don't give up my standards. I'm not a jerk. I'm not harsh. I'm not rude. But I have limits. That's to ease to be distinguished. The rest of the qualities, we'll finish inshallah, but again, knowledge. Since you read about the history of this place, you know, I have some neighbors, older people. I remember when I lived here, this neighbor used to throw oranges in his trash can. That's insane. I will lie, he used to take the oranges out of the trash and wash them. Those oranges were mashallah. And it's cheap, cheaper than Trader Joe's. But I used to ask him, man, Oranges in San Jose. He's like, yeah, my grandfather had an orange farm here. And he told me the whole history of Santa Clara and the oranges. It was, I was like, I never knew this before. This is awesome, man. Second thing is knowledge of the religion. What that means is you don't have to become a scholar. It means issues that pertain to you. People around you ask questions. You become responsible now for sharing that information. So you have to have access to people. So you can go on YouTube. Reputable people, please. Not lunatics. Right? Read for yourself. Ask your local imams. Make sure that you have access to people. Right? One of the things I like about coming here is the office hours. Because the office hours, people come to me like, my coworker asked me this. My professor asked me this. My neighbor asked me this. Right? That, that's that relationship we should have. And when you said group work, spirituality, and the last one you said is no, no Zang Malik or Shireen or whatever. The last qualities, and we'll finish, inshallah, are wisdom and hikmah. 
Hikmah means to be internally intelligent, to feel things out and to have an understanding. Mutanabi said, Mutanabi said to be wise before bravery is two forms of bravery. It means to do the right thing at the right time, to know how to deal with people. When I first became Muslim, some of you know the story. There was a guy next to our mosque who used to sell alcohol in his liquor store. He was from a Muslim country. My friend and I just became Muslim, uh, Leland. Now his name is Mujahid. He's married to Moroccan, so he's very happy. <laughs> but, yeah, Harira, man, he's good. He'll steal on Friday in Rafisa. So, we decided we're going to give da'wah to this guy. How? We're new Muslims. So we said we're going to dress up like scholars, <laughs> go in there and buy beer. <laughs> and I was giving khutbah at that time. This is actually a year or so. So I went, we went into the store, I grabbed a 24-pack of, uh, actually I grabbed some 8-ball, you know what I'm saying, 40 ounce. But <laughs> we were in there, and then I'm not going to say what Mujahid grabbed because it's not worth mentioning. And Mujahid had his test B, so he's holding it, he's like, it's not <laughs> And the guy was like, Imam Sahib? I was like, yeah. I was like, Jelly Karen. Like, hurry up. Ring it up, man. And he said to me, but today, today you give a sermon. I said, yeah, it's, it's, hey, it's the nighttime, man. Margaret is out. Where's Shereen? So he started ringing it up. And then Mujahid said to him, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. He said, are you shocked to see us buying this? He said, the Imam is buying beer. He said, we're shocked to see you selling it. Then he started crying, and he made Toba to Allah subhanahu wa And after a year, he, he changed his business. He became a doctor, mashallah. Point is, like, how you deal with people is wisdom. In Egypt, man, people smoke cigarettes a lot because it's a lot of stress. You got to understand that. You can't just get in the car and be like, why are you smoking haram? And you ask him, man, how you feeling? You know, a lot of stress. And my kids ain't good. Really, why? Cause them cut the key, little chickens. <laughs> why? Well, the mama, yeah, I don't hear about no mama, bro, because the mama don't play in Egypt. But then I was in the car with my son, this guy, he's smoking cigarettes. My son has allergies, Malik. I said, hey, Ami, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah. I said, because you look, mashallah, Allah gave me this incredible month of Allah went to Sa'iqotex. You're a taxi driver. Mashallah. You own your own car. He was like, okay, you ready? Good. I said, my son, he likes candy. He won't stop eating candy. Can you tell him? So he was smoking. He said, Ya Walid, you know anything that's going to hurt you? It's not allowed for you to use it because it's going to hurt you. He said to me, thank you for advising me like this. He threw it out the window. He said, everybody yells at me. Everybody screams at me. Nobody tries to like touch me. I said, okay. Try your best, stop smoking. We want to be able to deal with people in a wise way. You should make people feel valued, man. People aren't going to listen to you if they don't think you value them. So if you see a young person coming to the mosque, they're not dressed right, don't go off on them. Why don't you go ask them what their name is? You should ask them like, hey, you know, you play sports, what school do you go to? Strike a conversation. A lot of converts and a lot of quote-unquote, we have a lot of people that have one Muslim parent and one non-Muslim parent in our communities. You'd be shocked. Right, so sometimes they're not they're confused about how they're supposed to act and they come into your mosque and someone violates their human rights and they never come back again. Because
You gotta know people, you gotta care for people, this is hateful. The last two qualities are that we should be able to be charismatic and qualified for how we present the situation. And then thirdly, we should have factual information. So let's mention the qualities of community organization. We'll stop here, inshallah. There's a million things we can talk about, but we don't have time. This is a broader kind of workshop that I've put it together now for some people. Number one, we said it's a community obligation to be involved in the issues of this country. We have a great opportunity with Sister Ibtihaj Muhammad. She's going to be in the Olympics, man. I wish you could make a dua for her. That's our girl, man. So the Muslim sister in the Olympics. That's incredibly powerful. Right? That's, that's meaning. Powerful meaning. Second, we said that the conditions we should think about after mentioning some of the common kind of concerns about community organization, not being qualified, not being a good Muslim. Listen, man, I don't care about not being a good Muslim. If you want to get down, get down. MashaAllah, Allah bless you. You'll find that goodness through time. Goodness just doesn't happen. Third thing we said was balancing good and evil. And then we mentioned the qualities of people who should be involved in this after asking ourselves, what does the MCA mean? the broader society, what do you and I mean to the broader society, to our families, to our children? We said number one is knowledge, knowledge of the people, knowledge of the religion. Number two, group work. Number three, spirituality. Number four, we said, is to be distinguished in how we carry ourselves. And we mentioned the last three, wisdom, being wise, right? Remember the guy who was smoking cigarettes and muscle, the Cleopatras. Third thing we said is, charisma, shaksiya sahira. Not everybody should grab the mic. Like at a national level, honestly, I'm like you now. I'm not a part of an institution. It feels good though, I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> but when we watch sometimes after something happens and you see the person speaking on behalf, you're like, why, man? Like, really? No, dog. Not dog, sorry, but no, man. Like, no, man. This person? I'm donating to an organization. If I'm donating, I'm putting my money on the table. I should be able to have accountability and say, listen, I want, for example, someone like Linda Sarsour. I want her speaking. I want Dawood Walid speaking. I want Zahra Bilo speaking. I want Bassam. Well, any organization, right? I want Imam Hamza, Dr. Ingrid Madison. I, I want some of these young, brilliant Muslims representing our community. Not people who can barely speak, and I say this with respect, the cultural language or the actual language very clearly. That's a problem. And when one in three American Muslims is black, I need to see some black community members speaking on behalf of our community, man. It's more than 50% of who we are. And women, and youth. I should be able to call people to be accountable because I'm thinking about what do I mean to the society? Not what does the society mean to me? That's very selfish. So he said wisdom. Number two is charisma. Then the last one he said is being able to argue based on sound information, not emotions. We get very emotional. In Washington, D.C., I run an organization called Center D.C. You have to pay to be a member. Yeah, you're free. If you want peanuts, fly Southwest. It's not expensive. But we also have conditions for membership. The first condition is you have to take a worship, workshop on conflict resolution. It's unheard of in the Muslim community. Conflict resolution. Because we're going to fight. We're going to argue. We're going to differ. But getting emotional, exploding, 
running out of the community and never coming back again doesn't do anything for anybody. Opening up a new mosque down the street and calling it, you know, Marshall William Dean Webb ain't going to do anything for anybody. But the ability to argue and turn agitation into something positive can be extremely powerful. So may Allah subhanahu wa bless all of you. Barakallahu wa alaykum. Appreciate your time. Zakallahu khairan wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.